Would you take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 15? Romans chapter 15. This is Paul's closing uh, address uh, to the church at Rome. He has finished, remember, his uh, theological, practical, his doctrinal section, and is now uh, making some concluding remarks in preparation for uh, what he hopes will be a visit to uh, the church at Rome. And he dwells in this section on the promises uh, to Abram and the prophecies to Isaiah that have been and are being fulfilled, the promises of all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth being blessed through the offspring of Abraham. And as we read last Lord's Day evening from Isaiah 60, of the wealth of the nations flowing in uh, to Zion as the nations work uh, to build up the kingdom of the living God. And so I want to see, uh, God willing, uh, three things with you this evening. Paul's desire in verses 22 to 24, his concern in verses 25 to 29, and his prayers in verses 30 to 33. So before we read God's word, let's pray, asking for his help and blessing. Almighty God, we praise you for your saving word. The word which has given us life and life abundant. You are God. And we are your people. So we ask that your spirit would speak to us by the scripture this night. That you would conform us to the image of Christ. That you would stir up in us a zeal for our duty. A zeal for you that we would see the greatness of your love for us. And we would rest all the more patiently as we wait upon you. Hear us, O our God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 15, beginning at verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, and I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, And to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And thus far, in God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, may he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. 
Well, let's consider uh, now Paul's desire. Paul explains the reason for his being hindered in coming to uh, the church at Rome. I think you get a sense of uh, the delight, the longing he had to be with the Christians there. Paul had been laboring in the eastern regions of the empire, the backwater of the empire in many ways. But he's heard of this thriving community of God's people, this thriving church or perhaps group of churches at the very heart of the empire. And he desires to go and to visit them. But he explains the reason for his failing to come uh, is that he has been preoccupied, busy with ministry up until now. Now, remember, he's written strongly to them especially in chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15, he's written uh, some very clear instructions and corrections to them. And it might have seemed to these Roman Christians to be rather impersonal, especially when one considers the very specific exhortations and correctives that he gives. Never having visited them, they might be thinking, well, who is this guy and what, what business is this of his? So Paul makes explicit why he has not come. He has been preoccupied with ministry in the east, but now things have changed. There are no longer those virgin territories in the eastern empire to plant churches. Remember Paul's ministry, as we considered last Lord's Day, his ministry was a specific calling to go where no apostle had gone before. To plant churches where there were no churches. Where Christ's kingship was not confessed and where Christ's salvation is unknown. But now, after years of that sort of ministry, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go in the Eastern Empire. And so we should see, by way of, by way of application, that gospel progress, gospel conquest, gospel gathering are guaranteed Such a statement by the apostle. Verse 23, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Why? Because the regions are crowded with churches. Such a statement by the apostle Paul should give us confidence that the proclamation of Christ, the testifying to Christ is the means by which the church is built and by which sinners are converted. A movement that began a couple of decades prior with a hundred or so people huddled in a single room in Jerusalem has now spread outward from that city such that there is no place in the eastern portion of the empire where Christ is not named, where Christ is not worshipped. Of course, not that everyone was a Christian, but that there were churches founded and planted where Christ was worshipped in every region. And so, Christian, we can have confidence that the word and prayer are the effective means of God to bring people to faith in Christ. The gospel will go forth and it will conquer. So gospel progress, conquest and gathering are guaranteed. But we must also see by way of application gospel progress, conquest and gathering are costly. Paul, in some way, is is looking back on his ministry, and he's he's noting the success. But what he doesn't write 
to the church at Rome is what this had cost him. Now, he alludes to what it will cost him in Jerusalem, what he knows is coming. But he writes to the church at Corinth, the church he knew better. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11. Would you turn there to 2 Corinthians 11? Just a few pages, hence, in your copy of the scripture. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 23. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. (laughs) I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from river, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul there reflects on the cost of his ministry. Keep your, keep your finger there. There in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul is contending against, remember, those super apostles, those who would modify the gospel to make it in some way more acceptable to the culture. They would have the people believe that their ministry is superior to that of the apostle Paul. And so in this short bio, biographical reflection, the apostle presents his credentials as a genuine apostle. And his credentials consist in scars and bruises and trauma. His sufferings for Christ. And so this should remind us the gospel triumphed. The gospel conquered the Roman world. Not because it won ready acceptance by those in power. Not because it was accommodated to be consistent with the culture. Not because they found touch points that resonated with the city or with the country. The gospel triumphed because the people of God persevered against the hostility of the worldlings and proclaimed Christ with clarity and without compromise. The gospel triumphed because every weapon deployed against it failed. And let your eyes scan back up to 2 Corinthians 11, 23 and and following and see every weapon was deployed against it. Beaten with rods, imprisonment, near drownings, sleeplessness, danger, everywhere danger. Every weapon deployed against the gospel failed. And so, in a sense, the apostle has worked himself out of a job. Not that there no longer is need for ministry, but there is no longer that virgin territory in the east. The sort of ministry to which the apostle was especially called. So there's the reason for his hindrance. He has been busy, very busy, very useful for the king. But now he desires a new partnership. Let's look back at verse 23, the end of verse 23 in in Romans Uh, Chapter 15, Paul reaffirms his long-standing desire to visit the saints in Rome for a pastoral visit 
to strengthen and to encourage them and to be encouraged by them. He describes a visit here that is not quite casual, but neither is it to be prolonged. He hopes for a partnership with the church at Rome. Now, in his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, Paul was partnered with and sent out as a missionary of an apostle of the church at Antioch. That church prayed for him, they supported him, and when he would return from his missionary journeys, he would report to them about what happened. Well, now the apostle desires to go to Spain, which is a bit too far for that partnership with the church or presbytery at Antioch. And so he alludes to a desire to partner with the churches at Rome to fulfill this need. The verbiage here... um, suggests that he would be sent on this journey with various pieces of assistance, which would include prayer and well wishes, of course, but not necessarily limited to such. Paul seems to desire that Rome would become his base of operations for his work in the Western Empire. And so we should consider, we should see by way of application, the churchly concern of the apostle. That the apostle is concerned that all his ministry take place in the context of and under the oversight of the church. In our anti-organizational age, in our individualistic age, this is an important point. The apostle was not simply content to do ministry as an apostle. He insisted on doing ministry in partnership with and under the authority of, and by the commission of, the church. Would you turn now to Acts 13? This is Paul's first missionary uh, journey. Um, He's commissioned there. Prior to his missionary journeys, Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So Paul, he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before he begins this missionary journey, he is commissioned by the church, the presbytery at Antioch. And when they finish their journey, they go back to Antioch and give a report to the church. Acts 14, 24. From there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time there with the disciples. So what do we see? Even the Apostle Paul is accountable to the church. He does these great missionary works under the authority of the local church or the presbytery. Likewise, in Acts 18, we see the same thing. Paul returns again to Antioch and is sent out a third time. And so the church is the center of life for the Christian, even for the Apostles. The church is the means by which the gospel is to be spread. 
In our day, there are numerous parachurch organizations. And parachurch organizations can be often helpful and good and useful to the kingdom of God. Often, parachurch organizations specialize in a particular type of ministry as Christians from various congregations unite in a shared interest for a particular type of ministry that helps the church and that they are more effective in that area by combining their expertise and interests. A Christian school might be an example of a a very effective parachurch ministry. But the church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the means for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in the world. All other ministries, all other activities must terminate in the sense of lead to the church, to Christ and his people. A parachurch ministry cannot exist for itself. When I was in seminary, there was a man associated with the uh, the church in Jackson, who is very zealous for Christians to be made in a certain Eastern European country. And he would go uh, around that country asking gospel questions. You know, if, if you should die tonight and God should ask you, why should you be allowed into my heaven? What would you say? And, and uh, he would use that as a way to share Christ with them. And that was good. But the thing he never did was connect them with a local church. He never discipled them. They had made professions of faith, but there was no discipleship. Now, years later, some Presbyterian missionaries moved to that same region for the purpose of planting churches, and they encountered many of the people who had earlier professed faith, and there was a big mess, spiritually. Because the people have been living thinking they were Christians, but they had no connection to the body of Christ. There was no discipleship. There was no training in righteousness. There was no church. And so it's fine to do ministry. We are all called to ministry. But that ministry must always terminate. It must always have the goal of bringing people to Christ in his church. To his body. To be united to the body of God's Son. And if a ministry is not gathering people to the church, it is dangerously defective. Even the Apostle Paul insisted on doing ministry connected to a church, under the authority of the church, and with the goal of establishing churches. And if that was the case for the Apostle, it's certainly the case for us now. So there's Paul's desire to go and to be with them and to join in partnership with them. Well, his concern, his present concern, verses 25 to 29. Presently, the apostle is engaged in bringing material financial aid to the saints in Jerusalem. As much as he desires to fellowship with and be encouraged by the saints in Rome, the task at hand must be fulfilled, even as he looks to what he believes will come next. Luke mentions the aid brought to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. He mentions it only once at uh, 24.17 in the book of Acts. Uh, But Paul sees this concern as important. He writes on this subject to the Galatians 2.10 and twice to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 16, which we read this morning, and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The ministry of mercy to the poor 
is obviously a priority for the apostle. Not only because of compassion for the poor, but because of the particular redemptive, historical, the theological realities that this mission will express, which we'll consider in a moment. But here we see the dignity of diaconal work in which the apostle is involved and supporting. And so we mustn't think, uh, based on Acts 6, that there is a, a sharp bifurcation between the work of an elder and the ministry of the deacons. Paul sees this generous giving by the Greek churches as an outflow of their understanding of the gospel, of the redeemed life they now enjoy because of the Hebrew missionaries who proclaimed Christ's gospel to them. Now, what was the situation at the Jerusalem church? Well, the Jerusalem church was very poor. And this is the case for a number of reasons. Uh, Jerusalem, after all, was not a wealthy city in its own right. It was on trade routes, but only inland trade routes. It was not a port city. And so Jews from throughout the Mediterranean would send funds to relieve the poverty of the residents in Jerusalem. But the Hebrews who had become Christians would lose access to this charity. Leon Morris notes, the Jerusalem church, uh, the Jerusalem church, the Jerusalem church, early on engaged in a sort of voluntary communism. Uh, the few wealthy within the church had sold their possessions in order to provide the po- for the poor. But there was nothing done to replace what was sold. And so they had realized capital and distributed it as income which left no reserves for hard times in the future. And so this is an important lesson, even an application for uh, the church regarding stewardship. That where the church is meeting the physical needs of any sort, whether it is uh, for members or for a building, we must not do so in a way that poorly manages what God has entrusted to us. And so there is this poverty in the Jerusalem church, but there are these generous Greek Christians. Look at verse 26 and the end of verse 27 as we consider the delightful duty of these Gentiles. The relief funds Paul is bringing come from Gentile churches in Corinth, that's Achaia, the province of Achaia, and Philippi, that's of course Macedonia. Twice Paul has emphasized the willingness of these Gentiles to do this, to give generously to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. I think he's probably implying that the church at Rome might do similar. Isn't it interesting, though, how Paul speaks of these benefactors? In writing to the church at Philippi, we definitely have the sense that they were generous beyond even what was reasonable. Yet Paul writes two letters to the churches at Corinth And we get the sense these wealthy Corinthians were much more reluctant to follow through on the collection of what they had pledged. We we understand that they, they clearly pledged financial support and they clearly wanted to give. But as you read... Uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you, you definitely get the sense that there was a lot of inertia to, from between when they filled out the pledge card and by the time they took out their checkbooks, so to speak. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 to 5. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know of your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since the last year. 
and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brethren uh, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we will be humiliated, to say nothing of you, for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So what's going on there in 2 Corinthians 9? Well, obviously, Paul is uh, in in Philippi, and the Philippian Christians, a a rather poor uh, church, had yet given abundantly, hearing that the Christians in Corinth had, pro- had promised an abundant gift for the church in Jerusalem. And the Philippians, they, they demanded to give, even beyond their means, right? Well, then Paul hears that the, uh, I don't know whether it was First Pres Corinth or maybe it was the whole presbytery, hadn't quite collected what had been pledged. And he says, look, if I come with you with, with the Macedonian deacons, the Philippian deacons, and you're not ready, I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to look like a fool to say nothing of you people. So let's go. Let's get it together. They were willing. Paul sees this uh, as, a, as a tangible, concrete application of their union with Christ and with one another. They were willing, but just not as speedy to do it as they ought to have been. But notice how the apostle speaks of them as he writes to the church in Rome. He doesn't talk about this reluctance, does he? They did the right thing, and eventually, or they did the right thing eventually, and that's what he reports. Now, there was no tax imposed on the Gentile churches for the poor among uh, the Jerusalem Christians. That's something to note as well. This was an obligation but it was also a delightful duty, but it wasn't a tax imposed. Under the gospel, there are no prescribed proportions that are given to the church as far as what to give. Under the old covenant, there was, of course, uh, the tithes, a tenth portion of the produce and property given to support the tribe of Levi and the worship of the old covenant church. But under the new covenant, there is no proportion prescribed for giving. The General Assembly concluded in 1859 that no church court has the right to tell a person you must give such and such proportion to the worship and work of the church. Now, for many under the gospel, 10% still forms a baseline, a starting point for giving to the church. But if believers under the old covenant, knowing Christ only through the types and shadows, were called to give 10% of their produce to the church, how much more are we enabled to give to the church now? We upon whom the end of the ages have come who have beheld Christ crucified for our transgressions and raised in triumph for our vindication. So this is a delightful duty of the Gentile churches. But this giving also manifests spiritual fruit and material blessing. Paul sees the giving of the Jerusalem or giving to the Jerusalem church not simply as a privilege but also a duty. And it's a twofold duty. One, it's a duty because they're able to do it. Right? They're in union with Christ and also in union with these poor Christians. They have the financial ability to meet the needs of believers in poverty out of their own abundance. 
And so they ought to do it on that basis alone. Though the apostle doesn't tell them, you must give this proportion. But he simply sets their, their duty before them, one believer to other believers. So it's a twofold duty. That's the first portion. Right? They're able to, so they ought. But he also says, you are indebted to the Jerusalem church. It was Hebrew Christians who first brought the gospel, who first brought the good news to these Gentile regions. If the Gentiles have received uh, material blessings, they should share those material blessings with those from whom they receive spiritual blessings. This is a token of the bond of fellowship they share in Christ. John Murray puts it this way. The Gentiles have become partakers in spiritual things emanating from Jewry and Jerusalem. As such, they are indebted to the Hebrew Christians to support them and to serve them. After all, the law comes from Zion, Isaiah 2.3. And it is the shoot from the stump of Jesse who is the Lord's servant bringing salvation to the Gentiles, Isaiah 11.1 and 42.1. The nations shall come to the light And the kings to the brightness of Zion, Isaiah 60. And as Jesus said, salvation is from the Jews, John 4, 22. And so there are redemptive historical principles and fulfillment involved in this duty. And so treasure flows to Zion. You see that at verse 28. Paul sees what he is doing as a literal fulfillment of prophecy. As the wealth of the nations flows to Zion for the aid and support of God's people there. Now, this literal fulfillment does not exhaust the prophecies of Isaiah. The nations will come to Zion and build up her walls. All the world will serve Zion. And this offering is just a small preview of what will happen at the last days when the nations are glad because they share in the salvation Christ has won. They share in the salvation of the Holy One of Israel. Well, that leads to a question, perhaps. Is there a continued obligation of the Gentile Christians to support the Jews or the Jewish state today? After all, if you read the news or you listen to political rhetoric or even some radio preachers, you might hear something along those lines, right? The Jews are God's chosen people and American Christians have an obligation to support them because those who bless Israel, God will bless. Now, I'm, of course, condensing several talking points and arguments for the sake of time. But is that accurate? Is there an obligation for American Christians to support the Jewish state? No. Not at all. The Christian church, Christian people have no obligation to support the Jewish state in our day. At least no spiritual reason to support the Jewish state in our day. Consider a few reasons why. First, the aid that was given, the aid that was collected, was not for the Jews generally, but it was for whom? Hebrew Christians who were being persecuted by whom? Unbelieving Jews. This aid was necessitated because of the wickedness of the Jews. And so a text such as this cannot be used to claim the church has a duty to support the Jewish state without doing violence to the context, without ignoring the reasons for which Paul is collecting this aid. 
Second, the idea that there is a Christian duty to support a Jewish state is quite new. It dates back no earlier than the 20th century. But prior to 1948, there was no Jewish state for Christians to support. This idea has its roots in 19th century dispensationalism. But even then, dispensationalism rests on a somewhat novel view of the end times that is contingent upon a physical temple being constructed in Jerusalem with blood sacrifices being restored. Something dependent upon a literal fulfillment of prophecies that for the first 1900 years of the church were interpreted figuratively, literarily, rather than literally. Third, the Israel of God is and always was the church. Under the old covenant or the new covenant, God's people is the church. Our Lord Jesus Christ comes and in his public ministry makes an explicit point of showing himself to be the reconstituted Israel. Perhaps most clearly in how he calls how many disciples? Twelve. And he commissions them to do what? To be a light to the nations, which was the commission of Israel. Moreover, the name Israel was given to a man after he wrestled with God. It was not a name of a race or an ethnicity. It is a name of a people who cling to God for blessing, whose hope of blessing is in God. And so what does that mean for the present conflict in the Middle East? Well, what is the duty of Christians? It is our duty to pray for an end to war. It is our duty to pray for God's judgment on all those who wage aggressive war. It is our duty to pray that the wicked will be brought down, that justice would prevail, that the gospel would go forth in boldness, freedom, and clarity throughout the lands, that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, that the gospel be propagated throughout the world, that the Jews would be called into Christ, and for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. Why? Because our desire is for the nations to be glad as they have come to worship the true and living God. And so that's where the apostle turns now, verses 28 and 29, the blessing to the nations. Paul returns to his plan to go and visit Spain after this ministry to Jerusalem is fulfilled. And he says, I am confident that I will come to you in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Both they and he will be blessed by his coming. Notice how Paul doesn't qualify this. I am confident I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Remember how Paul comes. He comes to Rome in chains. Now, uh, this is one of the just the, one of those small things that confirms to me the authenticity of the scripture. If you are writing Romans as 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 a as a person in the second or third century, trying to come up with with uh, justifications for why the uh, the church should submit to the civil authority, if you were just making up a book to create a cult and a and a and a myth, you probably wouldn't put something like this in here, knowing that Paul came to Rome in chains. But Paul knows that, however, he comes to Rome. He will come with the fullness of the blessings of Christ. And Acts 28 indicates that's how Paul came. 
even in chains. Well, let's now look in the third place at Paul's prayers. Verse 30. He desires to be united in prayer. As is so common in his letters, Paul implores his readers to join together in praying for him. Uh, This is not simply a casual prayer, but struggling with God, striving with God in prayer because of the love of the Spirit. Is this their love to the Spirit or the love the Spirit produces? Sure. This is the Spirit working in the united prayer of God's people. Notice the triune exhortation to prayer. By the Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Father, by the love of the Spirit, and these prayers are offered to God the Father. What does he specifically ask in prayer? It's a worthy thing to, to note that he doesn't say, please pray for me, and then move on. He says, please pray for me in these two ways. First, his deliverance from the unbelievers, the disobedient in Judea. Pray for my deliverance from the wicked Jews. The same people who crucified the Lord of glory will now come for his servant. In fact, that is the, that's how Luke presents it in Acts, doesn't he? He presents Paul as suffering in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ, condemned by the same court as the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke tells us in Acts how Paul knew going to Jerusalem meant hardship, imprisonment, persecution, torture, and so on and so forth and such like. Paul will not compromise his mission or his message. But also, and this is important to recognize, neither does he crave martyrdom. He prays for deliverance. Paul's understanding of God's sovereignty does not push him to a fatalistic acceptance, but prayer that the designs against him by the wicked Jews will fail. And so that's the first item on his prayer requests, of his prayer requests. His second item is this, that the Hebrew Christians will accept the offering, will accept the gift, the ministry he is bringing from the Gentile churches. Now, why would he have to pray for that? These people are poor, and he's bringing the means to support them. Well, remember that Paul is not popular among the churches in Jerusalem. He imprisoned and murdered many of their friends and family. We never read of the Jerusalem church doing much of anything to minister to his needs while he is in prison in Caesarea. We read of his friends coming to serve him, but we don't read of any uh, particular support from the Jerusalem church while he is in prison. But also, the Jerusalem church was very traditionalist. It was dominated by Hebrew culture. It was very wary of Gentile believers, even if they acknowledged them in Acts 15. And so the apostle is aware that this gift will, even as it encourages and helps the Jerusalem Christians, it will humble them. And so he asks, That the church pray that this ministry will be found acceptable. That the church there will not be too proud or too suspicious to receive it, but manifest the union that exists between Jerusalem and all the churches of Macedonia and Achaia. Notice again the apostle's devotion to the church. Even though he is uncertain that this gift will be received. 
even though he knows these people don't particularly like him. He nonetheless does what he can to labor on their behalf, on behalf of the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Well, now let's look at verses 32 and 33, the result of this kind of praying. Paul's desire is for the gift to be received with joy and for the visit to terminate without hindrance and to come joyfully to Rome on the heels of a successful ministry, strengthening the bonds of peace and the unity of the spirit between the churches of Jerusalem and the churches of Greece. And of course, that's not exactly what happened, is it? The Jews, the unbelieving Jews, they rioted against Paul. They beat him horribly. They conspired to murder him. They invented false charges. And they became more resolute in their unbelief and their rejection of God and his salvation and in their rebellion against Christ the King. But nonetheless, Paul arrived in Rome years later, though a prisoner. But what do we read in Acts 28? Speaking of Paul, Luke tells us he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so the church at Rome was nonetheless strengthened by the apostle and he by them, though his visit was not as brief as he had planned. And so he is confident the God of peace be with them. One of many benedictions in Paul's letters. God is characterized by peace and he gives peace to his people. And his people have peace with him. Our peace with God is assured at this table. Christ's body broken for us. Christ's blood poured out so that we may come before God's presence, not as prisoners before an angry judge, but as children. To a loving father, to be nourished, accepted, and loved because Christ's body was broken and his blood was poured out for us. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, we thank you for your patience with us and your covenant faithfulness. Bless and strengthen us now as we come to your table. For Jesus' sake. Amen.